Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Happy summer, everybody, and welcome to Over the Ball. If you can hear my voice, please get vaccinated, will you? E pluribus unum, as they say. Uh, if you're not getting va- vaccinated, th- those who are not getting vaccinated, it's, you're really testing the patience of the rest of us. I don't, you don't believe in it. You think it's a hoax. It's like saying, I don't believe in polio. Get a vaccination, you idiot. All right, today on Over the Ball, one of our favorite guests here on our little podcast that could, John Champion. John is a consummate professional. He's been in the soccer broadcasting business for a long, long time. We're happy to, uh, that he's actually made his way across the pond and has taken on the lead role, uh, broadcaster for ESPN's MLS coverage. And this past June did some really great work uh, in the Euros for ESPN. So it'll be nice to get caught up with Mr. Champion. So lots to cover as always, guys. U.S. men taking on Cutter or Qatar. I've heard it pronounced both ways. I don't, uh, I don't think many players on that team are actually – uh, from that country, uh, Sam, we've talked about this before. They cheated their way into the World Cup. Maybe they're um, why not just pick a couple of foreign players and make them citizens of Qatar for the tournament? Uh, and the U.S. women on their senior citizens tour, as it were, uh, not happy with that team for a whole host of reasons. We can discuss that uh, in a little bit, guys. Uh, but first, what are we over today on Over the Ball? Grail, no, Sam, Sam, you go first. Yeah, this is a little bit of a spinoff from last week. Um, I hadn't watched any, actually, Olympic soccer, men's or women's, until this morning. Uh, Turned on the Spain-Argentina game just to watch the last 15 minutes or so. And, I mean, first of all, it's really hard to go back to an empty stadium, right, after we had the Euro and the sort of culminating in this full Wembley and this kind of great celebration. Get vaccinated. Get vaccinated. All right, keep going. To go back to the empty stadium is really grim. Um, yeah. Second of all, NBC Sports is covering this like it does all its sports. So it's putting in ads during it. So it's taking you away from the game for a few minutes at a time while the game is still going on. Yeah, that's a bummer. Um, and, you know, Spain have actually brought a pretty decent team to this tournament. They've put some young players, a lot of guys that were on the Euro team. But um, I, just the quality of is not really there for me. I just I don't understand, especially the men's involvement uh, at, right. the, at the Olympics for soccer. It, it, yeah, it's just not. Well, look, it. you know, I, you know, I had some personal experience with this. I was on the, the Olympic roster in 84. Um, I think if 20 guys came down with Montezuma's revenge, I might have gotten a call. But what happened was just before the world, uh, before the Olympics started in 84 in Los Angeles, they cut all the amateur players. Uh, they decided that the only way you could define a professional player was those who played in the World Cup. Now, before that, it had just been uh, the best American college players, guys who hadn't played professionally. But that whole dynamic has changed. Um, and so it is kind of odd because we get to see these guys play in so many different ways that I think for the women, it probably takes on more significance because there's less ways for them to showcase mm-hmm. uh, their talents, you know, in some of these uh, other countries. That the I think the one they, they do yeah. get is the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, yeah. It does matter clearly for the women's game, but I think the women are going to have an issue pretty soon because I, with the way the game is growing in Europe, I think pretty soon we're going to have a European championship uh, in, you know, the women's game, if we don't already, in fact. Yeah, there, uh, already, and, there's a there already is. Okay, well, I think, no, but sorry, I mean like an international tournament. Yeah. Um, and the growth of that, I think, is going to make mean the Olympics gets kind of a lower and lower profile. Sure, sure. Yeah, it already yeah. is. Grail, what are you over? Yeah, so I'm over trying to figure out what conclusions can be drawn about the U.S. men's national team based on the Gold Cup. Um, okay. We, there's so many players coming in and out. It's it's hard to keep track of them. You know, we've obviously seen the guys that we hoped would do well. That you know, the DKs of the world that we thought may be the answer to the number nine 
um, position who haven't really stepped up. But then the emergence of guys like, um, you know, Sands, uh, who has been uh, who's been excellent. Uh, DK, Hoppy, Hoppy, Hoppy. Yeah. Hoppy. But 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 the, the whole missing link to all of this is we got World Cup qualifying coming up in six weeks and our best four players are going to en- enter the picture. You know, suddenly we're going to have Desh, sure. McKenney, Reina, Pulisic. So it's just it's just hard for me to say what's what will be the end product. So I'm, well, I'm, not, I'm not just taking too much stock in what's going on in the Gold Cup. I, I think, you know, obviously what Berhalter is doing at this point is sort of seeing, uh, you know, who you bring in, young players positionally, uh, you know, the depth of the bench, uh, who gets those spots because young guys get the experience to sort of be sitting on the bench for these big games, maybe getting some time, and that mm-hmm. gets them ready for the next stage. Conversely, and I want to get off on this because the women, it's the exact opposite. Now, for the men, we don't, we can't even keep track of all the players that they have coming into the U.S. men's national team. With the women's team, th- there you got, I, I'm, you know, you got a lot of older players. And what's well, the same team though, too? That's the main difference: is the team that plays in the World Cup for the women mirrors pretty much the team that's playing in the Olympics for the women. And it, for the men, it's a totally different. It's it well, not that the men qualified this time, but I'm just saying they're two different teams. Right. So I was in uh, Hyannis last night. I was performing uh, my new one man called uh, Fear of Heights and uh, for the Hyannis Film Festival. And it was uh, it was great. It was a great town. I, I actually spent the day going to the Kennedy Library, which, my God, it's just ancient history now. Yeah. It's just such a much more hopeful time for our country when when uh, when people JFK got vaccinated, or, you mean? Well, yeah, yeah, everybody got vaccinated for each other. It's just absurd. Measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, smallpox, you know, rotavirus, polio. polio, flu shot. Now suddenly this is a crazy a notion to get uh, uh, this vaccine. And it's like, you know, like you're talking about, Sam, we're watching empty stadiums again. It's like, God damn it, man, get your vaccine. Do your part for the rest of society. You're killing other people. Hey, little kids can't go to school to start a school without showing proof of being vaccinated. So I don't well, know. Well, that's what good. I, I'm all is. for the I'm all for the mandate. But, you know, they say older, white, uneducated uh, people are not getting vaccinated yeah. for the most part. And so I said, you know, these are the ones we were trying to protect for the last two years. So um, get your vaccine, man. It just pisses me off. So, all right. So what else pisses me off is, uh, look, you know, I, I go a lot harder at the women's national team than you guys do. I, I think, you know, we're all guarded about how to talk about it sometimes, but I think the lunatics are running the asylum. They've been thinking about everything but winning games. If you look at the U.S. men, all those young players are pressuring the older players for positions. You, we don't know who's going to be on the team right. uh, when it comes to World Cup qualifying. This is what happened to Germany, to the men's team. Uh, with Jurgi Lowe, the, the, the older players stayed on too long. It happened to Spain. They played too long. You could even argue that the U.S. men's national team, when Harks was there, those guys, I, I mentioned it last week, they were there for a long time. What starts to happen is familiarity breeds contempt. Megan Rapino, uh, Morgan, they all kind of think that that team is theirs because you know what? It is theirs. They've gotten a couple coaches fired. Uh, they've gotten, uh, they've handpicked this coach because they liked him. They liked what he's done. And what has he done? He's come in and made no changes. You talk about Macario there and, and there's no pressure on the older players to get pushed out. What, what I was talking about, uh, the players, the ages of the players, the five forwards that are out there, 32, 32, 33, 36, and 39. I mean, it's absurd. You do, and, and look, uh, you're not supposed to talk about a woman's age. Well, that's sexist now. That is sexist. You can talk about, you. we talk about a men's age and how it, how many 39 year old players are out on the pitch uh, that aren't in the goal, you know, that aren't goalkeepers. So they have stayed there too long. 
Uh, Megan Rapino is way off her game. Uh, she's been thinking about everything else besides playing. And I would clean house. I would clean house with, and put the young players in. Well, it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens because obviously, um, you know, coming off the three nil drubbing against Sweden, they came back and they beat. Um, I'm going to call them a powder puff, New Zealand six one, and I it, sure. it was just very deceptive because, you know, people that don't know soccer immediately jump to the conclusion, oh, the U.S. women's national team is back on track. Well, they won, which was job number one. Right. They had four. They had four offside goals that that weren't allowed because they didn't make the proper runs. They had two own goals were scored by New Zealand, and again, they were playing a very inferior uh, opponent. So there isn't much that could be garnered from that win. When they went up against Australia, you know, at least much better competition. Again, it's the recurring problems. Like their best players are not playing their best. Whether, whether it's age or whatever it is, the, the, it's almost too late in the process. Vlatko and, Andonovsky decided to hitch his wagon to the senior players and take one more ride at the OK Corral. You know, like this is oh, it. This hey, is it. Man. But yeah, I'm man. just saying that that was the philosophy. And I just think, sure. unfortunately, you know, a Macario or somebody like that is probably not going to be given a shot in this cycle. And they're going to have to just reboot for the next cycle. Look, look we've been talking for years now, yeah. now how the, the rest of the world is catching up. Our women have more advantages here to play than any other country in the world. Most countries, their women do not play soccer. So when they play a team like New Zealand, it's all new. They're supposed to beat up on them. And that's a normal game. Now you look at Sweden, um, they, they were organized, they were well coached, they're athletic, they're skillful. I mean, it was all what we talked about was, was going to happen. But if you're the coach, right, you know you've looked back and you've said, uh, Jill Ellis, there was a player revolt. Tom Sermani, they got him uh, taken out. Uh, you know, and even another coach, uh, Pia, had, had trouble too. So um, I think the lunatics are running the asylum. And boy, the growth that uh, the U.S. men's team had to go through. Uh, finally, the U.S. women are starting to face some some tougher competition. Everybody was a powder puff when the U.S. women started. Yeah. Everybody. And well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the other thing is you don't even have France and Germany in the Olympic tournament. So the two two of the top four teams aren't even there. But I think the U.S., you know, they've got the Netherlands coming up on Friday. Um I'm going to give them a benefit of the doubt. I, I, it's going to be a tough match. I think they can get by them, but then they're going to have to face Brazil. And Pia, who is now Brazil's manager, knows the U.S. better than anybody. She knocked off the U.S. when she was Sweden's manager in the 2016 Olympics. So I just, I, I, I just don't see them going through to the end of the tournament unless something unless something radical. I mean, even Rose Lavelle, so I can't pin this all on older players. Rose Lavelle has not been good at all in this tournament. And mm -hmm. she's one of their better, younger players. So I just think collectively, unless they show something we haven't seen in the Netherlands game, I just don't see them going all the way. Um, you know, uh, Sam, you've been kind of quiet. I know, I don't think you watched the games, uh, did you? Uh, no, I haven't seen it. Like I said, I haven't seen any Olympic men or women's games uh, up to this point. You know, well, and, and, well no, I was just going to just quickly, Flynn, I was going to say the one thing that I was very encouraged by is they have Arlo White doing play by play and they have Julie Foudy, who we love. And Julie Foudy has been very, very candid, which I really like. They were she just always is. She, she always it, drove, is. it drove her crazy with about 15 minutes left in the match with Australia. It's nil all. And clearly the U.S. just decided we're going to we're going to park the bus and play for a nil all draw. Julie Foudy, who is one of the world's most competitive people, was going nuts 
that they wouldn't take the game to Australia and try to win. She said, that is so not in the DNA of any U.S. women's national team player. She said, Carly Lloyd must be going, must be exploding internally out on that pitch with the idea that they're just going to sit back and let Australia possess the ball. But that's what they decided. I mean, they missed a couple chances early to win the game. And then at some point they just said, you know, we're going to go through with a no-all draw. The only problem with that mentality is how are you going to flip that switch in the next game? And I also think there's been some controversy that, uh, that the, the women run the team and that's never a good thing. And I, I tell you something, some of the comments Carly Lloyd made, even when they won the World Cup, uh, Hope Solo, we were talking about her last week. I mean, if that stuff happens in a men's locker room, there's a dust up. Guys are throwing punches uh, if, you, if you call out other players or things, if you're not the captain. So there are, you've been talking about it for a long time, girl, your concerns about the goalkeeping, the, the, the lack of competition uh, for the most part. Now. And goal scoring now, and and, um, and and I think it's finally happened. Now everyone's saying, "Oh, you everybody's pushed the panic button." And then you know your to, your uh, comment on New Zealand, you know, look, they're they're just not a powerhouse. They're not a big team. These these small you know countries that have very, relatively new women's programs in the country. They don't yeah, have. I mean, titles. just just two very telling stats, guys. So they finished second in Group Four with four points. It's the fewest points they've ever had in group play. They've never had fewer than six. And it's the first time the, uh, the team's ever been shut out twice in group play. So none of these are good signs because if, if you're not scoring goals, you know, and again, put aside the six against New Zealand, they were shut out against two better teams. It's just, it's, it, it be, you guys, we all play the game too. Psychologically, when you're not scoring, the pressure becomes intense because you cannot afford to concede a goal. I'm not sure whether you're Lukaku or anybody else, but do yeah. you guys know of another 39-year-old forward? How old is Zlatan? Uh, he's right around there. I think I he mean, might be 39. But I mean, yeah. he's a—I mean, he's an absolute freak of nature. I mean, well, they, you know, I guess it's Carly Lloyd, I think, or who would be that? Rapino's 36. She's yeah. off her game. Uh, yeah. Do you pull Rapino? I mean, it's like uh, you know. And then uh, you know, I just feel like that coach is handcuffed. It's unbelievable. And U.S. Soccer's got to basically deal with a team now who has, who's empowered themselves, uh, you know, that movie with the, the, the collective bargaining agreement that they've rescinded on. It's just not good. And I tell you something, all the stuff I've been reading uh, on Twitter, on Facebook, about the US, they've, they've turned the tide in the wrong direction as far as public opinion. I don't know if it's just uh, soccer people, soccer fans, uh, you know, I don't know. It's been, it's been sad yeah. to watch. It, it I mean, really look, they, they, they could prove us, they could prove us wrong. They could beat Netherlands, beat Brazil. They could, they could march to the, I mean, oh, but no, they, they probably will, but no, but something would just have to fundamentally change that I just have not seen. And it, and to your point, Sam, you know, the, the world has gotten better. The other teams have just gotten better, which is a wonderful thing for the sport. I mean, that's that's the best thing that could possibly happen. It's yeah, a parody. Yeah, but but there there are three or four teams coming up that I just think could beat them. You know, and you know, starting uh, yeah. with Nether Netherlands, who they played in the the World Cup final last time around and beat. But uh, but because they haven't been truthful in in the sense of uh, of saying you know 
the Brazil didn't play soccer classically with women, uh, you know, Spain, it was new, all these great soccer playing countries, Italy, Sam, you know, this firsthand, how many women were playing soccer in Italy when you were over there? Was it, was it, you know, every street corner, the men are playing and the boys are playing, right. But it's just not culturally something that we do. And that's something to be very proud about with the United States. But my biggest point is I feel like for the women, it's like the Harksy years where he's in three cycles of world cup. He starts to think it's his team. All those guys have been together for a long time. The coach doesn't know what he's doing. We've been here longer. It's like, it's just, it breeds uh, the lack of success. And um, you know, I think, I think almost like the men not uh, qualifying for the World Cup, you know, losing against TNT. Mm -hmm. This is a wake up call for the U.S. women's team because, yeah, it's a different set of circumstances. They have dominated the world uh, as other people just kind of get up to snuff playing. But I hope they make some changes, some wholesale changes on that team. Bring in all the young people. It's a young person's game at that level. I just think I just think, unfortunately, too, they've many of the players have picked a bad time to play badly. You know, just like yeah. the ones where kind of put aside the older players. I mean, just regular players you're counting on are not playing well. And look, as players ourselves, we've all yeah. struggled. Yeah. Sometimes you struggle as a team um, and, and they seem to be right now. So let's see what they yeah. do. Hopefully they come up with some answers, can address this. And I think the odds are that they get through. So, um, all right. So Paul Kennedy, uh, if Soccer America, one of our sponsors, he um, had an interesting article. He says that the, the U.S., uh, it's already the gold cup is already a success. What do you think guys, Sam, since you've been so quiet on the women. Yeah. Uh, I, I think given the crop of players that they have, I'll, I'll accept his point. Um, mm-hmm. I do think though, that for a tournament like this, the U S should be, I don't know, should have designs on winning it every time or at least sure. making the final. So I don't, I don't like getting to the semifinal and then, being all happy about it, especially when we're playing Qatar, uh, an invited country in the semifinal. Uh, not that that really matters, but um, I, I don't know. I, I'm not quite ready to call it a success at this point, especially considering how the games have gone down. I haven't seen, you know, a great, a, a great performance yet by this. Yeah, team. I mean, it's the it's it's the criteria for success, Sam. Right? I mean, it's if if success is it's given Burhalter a chance to evaluate a, a ton of players. I suppose it's a success. If you're looking at it based on performance, I, I, Lexi said it great about the Jamaica match. It was beautifully imperfect. Mm-hmm. They got the result, but it was a very, it was a hodgepodge of different play. There were certain guys that stood out. Um, you know, I think Matt Turner in goal is definitely solidifying himself as the number two behind Zach Steffen. So that's good. Hoppy scored a nice header. So, hey, do we have another forward maybe in the mix? Because well, That's what it was all for. Yeah, because yeah, DK for. hasn't really done it. You know, they, there were high hopes for him, but he's had a few bad matches. So, I mean, for that, I would say it's a success if you're, if you're just for evaluation purposes and maybe you find a diamond in the rough, then it's a success. Well, I, I think exactly that's what it is. And I think the earlier tournament, I get confused on what tournaments are happening, but we got to see Reyna and, and Polisic and McKenney, you know, all play. Uh, now they're, you know, they're resting, but you're saying, okay, who's playing themselves into other positions. And I think that's what the gold cup has been. And it's been really, I think, very successful that, because if you can continue to win while not using your basically a team, uh, you know, this is something Sam, you'd always see with the Italians, they have an A, B, C and D team, all these guys, you know, uh, a ton of players that they could choose from. Um, so I think it, it has been a success. I would, it would really bug me if we lose to Qatar, or cutter uh, uh, but you know i mean this is 
I think Burhalter's done a good job. And the uh, average age of the starting lineup against Jamaica was 23, and the average number of caps was 12. So we are talking about a very inexperienced team going Which, out. again, yeah. conversely with the women, the exact polar opposite. So, so speaking, not, yeah, speaking yeah. of Qatar a little bit here, who I think have been pretty decent, actually, from what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I uh, I don't know. They've they've clearly made some strides. You know, yeah. I, I'm not going to get into how they've done it. It all feels a little bit like reading a Le Carre novel when you start trying to find out like how they have all these these various hands and various pots. But my question is this: If Qatar wins the Gold Cup, is that a glaring failure for Concacaf? I mean, this is supposed to be sort of a showcase and an advertisement for the federation. And if you have an invited team win, what is what does that mean? You have an invited team with a lot of money, I think, and that's yeah. my my beef with them. They also I mean, it just seems like yeah, it seems. Just, just let me let me finish. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're also most of the players aren't from Qatar. I think they just were put in there for sort of uh, uh, sexy it up a little bit. Well, it's a promotional vehicle for the 2022 World Cup too. I mean, obviously you've got the Qatar brand name. I mean, it, Qatar or Qatar loves it obviously right because their name is splashed all over everything but to be fair i mean at least wherever their players are coming from and uh, i would have to do a deeper dive into that you know they're doing well i mean so i got to give them that they're not they didn't come into the tournament and lose like three games 15 nil so i mean they are a legitimately competitive team and i think it is nice i'll just say this i think it is nice for the host country to do well i mean i was really pulling for south africa when they hosted the world cup to do well I mean, I, you know, just for the, for personal pride. So I would, you know, I'm, all things being equal, I'd like Cutter to put on a good performance if they're hosting. Well, I, you know, you guys, neither of you have commented on my, you know, half the most of the players are mercenaries coming from another place. And, well, do we know? know do we know this yeah. for a fact? Yeah. No, a no, I don't know. Okay. Guys, guys, I don't have to have facts. <laughs> you, clearly, <laughs> whenever something's off, I'm like, oh, relax. I'm a comedian. They're all criminals. No, 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 no. It is good, but I'm saying they're they're all. I think they're mostly from uh, other countries. I think you got guys. They yes. just made them citizens of Qatar. So uh, you know, and I can't comment because look, kind of uh, Klinsman did that with some of the. Well, German I think players. the world of international soccer is riddled with complexities in terms of people's natural birthplace. And yeah, stuff, but not right? so egregious. Come yeah. on, your mother or grandmother was born there or something. Nobody's grandmother was born in Qatar. Uh, but I, I do, again, I do not know that for a fact. You don't. Sam, you don't. Sam, you know, I thought, we're going to be hearing from people about that one for you. So, Sam, um, I thought it was interesting how you just sort of traced all this cutter stuff. Their hands are in a lot of pockets and, um, you know, the money gets spread around. What was this connection with the Mexican fans we're watching the game and all the Mexican fans are waving Cutter flags. Yeah, th- this was odd. So watching the quarterfinal uh, between Qatar and El Salvador, uh, the Mexico were playing the later game. So there were already some Mexico fans in the stadium. And yeah. I was surprised anyway, just to see Qatari flags in the stadium. And I was thinking, you know, like who, who would have a Qatari flag? And then they zoomed in on them and they were all these fans with Mexico jerseys. And I didn't know if that was just like rooting against El Salvador, or what the uh, what the deal was with that. Um, uh, but then they had like a big, you know, sign saying, you know, Mexico supports Qatar. It was it was very odd. So I looked into it a little bit thinking, you know, were these people like paid off to do this? Um, and, you know, they may well have been as but I have no proof of that. I mean, Mexico may hate El Salvador. If I can just interject, you know, like the team I played on in Nantucket, we had a lot of nationalities, 11 13 different nationalities on the team. 
And I played with a guy from Mexico, this guy named Jorge for years and a great guy. And all of a sudden the player from El Salvador came over and he was like, I won't play with him. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, well, we don't like El Salvadorians. And I'm like, it was bizarre. There you we know, go. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I was, you know, made the, the uh, ignorant American statement. I'm like, dude, you're in America now, man. We all kind of just let that stuff go. I said, because most Americans don't know the difference between a Mexican and an El Salvadorian. You know, it's just like, what? Well, they're all, they all, you know, those countries are all contiguous and they have all sorts of, you know, n- international rivalries with those. So, th- right. so that would make some sense. I mean, I don't know, Sam, but that would make some sense if they yeah. have a bone to pick with El Salvador. I mean, that, why that, not root for a cutter? <laughs> that's very possible. And you may have yeah. just solved it, but I did look into it a little bit. And I thought yeah. it was interesting that Mexico and Qatar actually have a, a pretty, you know, robust agreement between them in terms of trade and everything. And I found yeah. something on the Middle East Institute website, speaking of, you know, look how oh, I, novels. I go there all the time. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, Flitty, Flitty, <laughs> Flitty's on that hours a day. Middle East um, Institute, yeah. But it's a whole it's a whole article on, you know, yeah. Qatari Mexican relations. And I'll just read, you know, the last couple of sentences uh, here. Just the growth of these relations is indicative of Doha's strategy of enhancing cooperation and investing in economies throughout the global south, including Latin America, to secure new allies, partners and friends simultaneously as Mexico looks to expand its economic footprint in the Arab world. Mm-hmm. It sees a stronger relationship with Doha as key to achieving this. So maybe there is a geopolitical connection that uh that these fans are also aware of. That, well, those uh, oil-rich con- countries, Sam, you know, it's all about the brand and whether or not it's the Emirates or uh, Qatar or whatever, it's all about you spreading the name around the world and, uh, you know, getting footholds into various things, right? Yeah. I mean, well, we, see, well, we see it in the Premier League, certainly. I remember the yeah. days when Barcelona had UNICEF on their front of their shirts. Yes. It's just advertising a good cause. So, uh yeah. Always follow the money, folks. That's what I say here on Over the Ball, unless you're talking about us and what we get paid to do this show. All right. Um, <laughs> Grail, talk a little bit about the Euro you know, 2020 post-tourney VAR analysis. Well, you know me. I, lo- I love these analyses about VAR because overall, I'm a fan of VAR. I know there are a lot of naysayers, but anyway, so they did. They, they looked at the 54 matches in the Euro tourney. tourney and of the 271 incidents checked by VAR, only 18 of them which is 6.5% resulted in corrections. Wow. And only eight were overturned when the ref went to that, you know, side pitch uh, screen. Right. Okay. So overall it, it did its job. And then is it, is it though? I mean, does that, that prove that? I mean, cause my point is VRR sometimes wasn't listened to enough. Sometimes the, the foul was like, they didn't want to reverse something. Um, you know, I guess well, clear, well, clear and obvious, but well, even- I know, I, I think on, I think on things like penalties and stuff, we can have that debate where they don't feel inclined unless it's a clear and obvious error, error to overturn a referee's penalty call on things like offsides and stuff. They have no hesitation at all, but then they, they also looked into the uh, premier league season uh, last year's season as we're entering the third year of VAR. So there were 2,029 total VAR checks, 129 reviews. The Premier League found that the accuracy rate was 97% with VAR. Well. So, so again, and the average time taken, this is another beef. It's taking too long. It was reduced by five seconds uh, in the 2020-21 season. Uh, and then 10 seconds for reviews and overall 50 seconds. So again, it's not fast enough for any of us, but in my mind, again, which do you want? Do you want VAR or we want a better VAR, but I don't want to get rid of VAR. 
You know, so 97% is pretty good, but I mean, we yeah. all concentrate on the 3% where they're wrong, but I think they should expand it even to other things that happen, like a, like a faking an injury uh, when they have 36 cameras around and you can see right. every angle after the game. So you yeah. suspend someone for the next game. You say you weren't even touched there and you went down and held your, your leg when you were hit in the shoulder or whatever it is. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and it uh, wouldn't even have to interrupt the match. That's just like a board of review right. that takes place after the match and then fines are instituted. Yeah, because some of the stuff that happens on the pitch, oh, that's that sort of non-soccer fans and soccer fans, really. Yeah. Non-soccer fans can't understand it at all. Um, but with soccer fans, it sort of say like, you know, it, it gets our goat too. So punish someone who fakes an yeah. injury or does something foolish. Uh, it just, you were caught. And the board of review goes over it after the game and you get a post yellow card or, or something. I don't know. What are so your thoughts? So the proposed changes are a wider offsides line, which I like, you know, so when they're showing the technology, instead of having just the elbow going over that hairline fracture of a line, it will be a wider line, which will take away those like armpit type calls, you know, when oh, the right. guy's feet are onside, but he's leaning in as every, by the way, it's humanly impossible unless you run leaning back to not have your for the forward part of your upper body ahead. So I think that's a good idea. And then re revising the handball rule to go back to something that's closer to accidental versus intentional. Right. Which I, which I, I applaud too. Now, whether or not this stuff gets, I think it's under review, it's proposed, it's got to get voted on by the clubs, but I'm all for it. I, and again, I think we've talked about this. I would rather just go back to the feet. Where are your feet in relation to right. the thumb? That's it. That's, Forget about anything above the feet. I think that was our rule when, when we yeah. played, Grail, wasn't it? It was the feet. If your feet were yeah. off, you know, and we didn't have VAR, obviously, but I think, you know, wherever your feet were. And then they said whatever can score a goal. So your head and, you yeah. know, shoulders, I guess. The fact is, though, that they're still catching more offsides than they were without VAR. So to me, it's a it's a better system, but an imperfect system. And my other thing is I would love to see them clean up corners and and you know the corner kicks were just everybody just beating each other up Guys it's like mauled. yeah it's like almost like in the bucket with basketball it's sort yeah. of you can you can do a certain amount but you can't you know the grabbing and stuff you start calling pks on that on, on a lot more infractions it'll stop right mm -hmm. away so all right guys uh, let's take a break there we come back uh we have a great conversation with john champion he did some really great work at the euros uh he was stateside for some of it uh in a bunker as he says and then he was uh, at wembley covering the games there and he talks about the differences and uh, it's really interesting always interesting talking to john champion so stick around and you listen to over the ball over the ball is brought to you by soccer america go to socceramerica.com slash join and sign up for the soccer america pro membership it's just four dollars and 90 cents a month or 49 dollars a year and by ticket iq the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets go to ticketiq.com and when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. All right, joining us now on Over the Ball, he's a man who has been covering this game, the game that we love for over 36 years, and he's only 38 years old. Amazing, this man's broadcasting career. He's broadcast every single World Cup and UEFA championship since 1990, covered three Olympics, and is currently the lead commentator for EPL's global output. And has now taken over his lead broadcast, as we all know, for ESPN's MLS coverage. And of course, we loved his, uh, his work this summer in the Euros, John Champion. Welcome back to Over the Ball. How are you? I'm very good. How are you all? We're good. We, you know, we were, we were concerned about your health. You're working so hard. You did the Euros. We've uh, given you a couple of weeks now to 
to catch some sleep, refamiliarize yourself with your family. We figure you're rested now. So, so what are your thoughts on the Euros in general? How did it all go, do you think, your overview? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, it was in two parts for me personally, because the first I think, 12 games that I called were done from a bunker in Bristol, Connecticut. And then we were allowed out. We were given our freedom, Taylor Twelman and myself, ahead of the quarterfinals. So we found ourselves doing multiple COVID tests and filling in reams of paperwork and eventually being allowed to board a flight from Boston to Frankfurt and then on to Munich uh, to call the quarterfinal between Belgium and Italy at the Allianz Arena, which was great. And then on to London after that. So um, our noses were a bit sore from the number of swabs we'd had to stick up them on a regular I bet, I bet. <laughs> and uh, we had writer's cramp from all the forms that we'd had to fill in, but it was worth it because yeah. when we got to Munich, there were 15,000 people in, but it sounded like 50,000. And by the time we got to Wembley, there were 65, 66,000 people at the game. So it almost, almost felt like old times, really. You know, so that's interesting. And I really felt the difference in the broadcast when you're either in the or the bunker, as you say. Um, and I always think Ava, per, uh, Ava Braun. So All right, but let's the, go broom cupboard then instead. <laughs> yeah, let's go broom cupboard. So, um, you know, is it how different is it for you? One in preparation uh, when you're doing it from, a, a, you know, not on site. And then when you're actually on a site that's so, so alive, um, how does it affect your broadcast? Um, well, it certainly affects the broadcast. I'm not sure it affects the preparation because mm -hmm. you're, you're trying to do the same job. It's just that you're hamstrung. You're in a straitjacket, effectively. Your hands are tied behind your back when you're doing it off monitor uh, because there's so much that you can't see and you are unaware of. You're just reliant on what the match director is showing you. And the match directors are not perfect. They do miss things, yep. uh, even with 25, 30 cameras around the stadium. And also you don't get a sense really in the same way of the pace of the game and the way the pattern of the match is unfolding if you're not there. So it's liberating, really, to actually be allowed to go back to a stadium again and do the job properly. Because if, if two players are trading punches 30 yards off the ball and the director misses it or chooses not to show it for whatever reason, then you're stuck if you're off to you. But if you're there, you can actually talk about it and hopefully the director catches up with you eventually and the viewers at home get to see it. But also, I think the key thing is as well is that you feed off the energy of the crowd. Right. Because where is the energy if you're sitting in a room cupboard three and a half thousand miles away with a very limited crowd at many of the fixtures? So there's not a lot of noise and atmosphere to, to go at. If you're surrounded by people who are uh, radiating energy, then I think you do feed off that. And it inevitably helps the broadcast. Yeah, you feel the energy. But and also I love when you guys comment on the things that are happening around the stadium. It gives you a sense of, of uh, the atmosphere and what you know what it's like to be there and what's happening, like you said, off the ball, because mm -hmm. many of us who know the game saying sometimes things happening off the ball are so much more interesting than actually Absolutely. what's happening on the ball. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, I mean, you, you feel that you are so restricted uh, operating off, off monitor uh, because you're only really giving the viewer half the story. Right. So that, that's why it was so good to be out and about again. Good stuff. Grail? John, welcome back. Congrats on a terrific uh, Euro 2020. Um, I wanted to talk to you about commentary fitness. <laughs> and what I mean by that is uh, when you're doing so many games in a condensed period of time, you're doing a tournament, I'm just curious about pacing. You know, are you, are you conscious of how you pace yourself and is it is it how different is it than your usual schedule where you're just not doing as many games in a short period of time i think you grell i think you get yourself into a tournament mindset and this was mm -hmm. sort of my i think 16th major tournament euros and world cup so i 
if I was ever going to find out what that mindset should be, I hope I've discovered it by now. And that mindset includes just locking yourself away in a darkened room for maybe three or four weeks before the tournament, doing the bulk of your notes, because ordinarily, not only are you doing a game either every day or every other day, but you're also leaping on a plane from A to B to C to D and then back to A again. Um, that wasn't the case for much of the tournament this time, but consequently they were able to lo load more games onto our schedule. So the original Euro 2020 schedule, had it been played when it was meant to be, would have had me doing, I think, six group games, and instead there were nine this time because they were able to make uh, extra use of us. And they had another commentary team, Ian Dark and Stuart Robson, who were actually based in Europe, but they were limited effectively to the games at Wembley, so couldn't do many matches. So we had to pick up some of the slack from that as well. So, yeah, for three or four weeks, my wife knows it's a good time to go away on her own on holiday because I just disappear into a darkened room and do my notes for the various teams. Um, and, and that's the most important bit. So you get yourself maybe 80% prepared for all the matches. And then you do the final 20% in the 24 hours before that particular game. So... We were all put in a hotel in Connecticut, about 15 miles from the ESPN campus. We were in West Hartford. And the biggest danger, actually, to my commentary fitness, as you described it, was Steve McManaman. Because he was <laughs> staying in the same hotel together with Chris Coleman and all the other talent in inverted commas that you saw on the yeah. TV. And Steve McManaman's minimum alcohol intake was probably 10 beers a night. <laughs> exactly. So, That's a night that, off. That That's was probably off. the biggest threat to our commentary fitness. Bob Lee, Bob Lee, who's a recent you know, guest on our show all the time, he said uh, he actually had uh, McManaman at his house in Clinton, Connecticut, and just just... Plum ran out of beer, just didn't have any more. And he's like, I am sorry. And the package stores are all closed. So, uh, so that's fun. I have known him for rather longer. Think that possibly intravenous is the best way to get beer in. <laughs> well, you talk, you talk about match fitness. You know, usually it's the players playing. But part of your match fitness uh, with broadcasting is to have a couple of beers and talk about the game that just was. But, you know, you, we were talking about you before you got on. I hope your ears were ringing. Um, we we're paying you a compliment. Because, and I think you just kind of answered... Um, why we noticed this about you there's a way to absorb facts over a longer period of time a few weeks like you say kind of studying for something there's a difference between when a fact comes up organically and it's like wow that that is so germane to what is actually happening on the field sometimes you feel like and i wouldn't say who it is but just certain times of broadcasters sometimes they're like oh they're reading that off a sheet of paper right in front of them or someone put that in front of them or something and it wasn't like a fact that was natural they were just sort of trying to say something and i feel like as a broadcaster that's a lot of your work right to just sort of have it come out naturally I think so. And, and I think there also needs to be an acceptance. Uh, maybe I've come to this mindset over the course of many years, but I think there needs to be an acceptance that you may have researched something. That doesn't mean you've got to use it. So I would hope that maybe 90% of what I research for a particular game, I don't have to use because the game is so good, it carries itself. Right. Um, if it's a, a rather turgid nil-nil draw and it needs a little bit of help here and there, then maybe you do dip in and use perhaps a third of the stuff that you've you prepared and researched. But I think it, it also boils down to not trying too hard. And that's difficult, I think, particularly for broadcasters who are trying to, still to make their way and to mm -hmm. garner some sort of reputation for themselves because they want to be noticed. And in fact, the older I get, the longer the tooth and I, I longer in the tooth that I get, the more I've come to realize that it's better not to try to be noticed. Just try to keep out of the way because if a, a wonderful moment happens and you manage to find an appropriately reflective line, then that's great, but it's instinctive. Um, right. So it's not something you can pre-prepare for anyway. So 
Uh, I found the job a lot easier since I got to the point in life where I thought, well, I don't need to try too hard. Right. And not be noticed. I think that's an interesting way to put it because it's almost like sometimes with bad acting, you don't know unless it happens. And then because good acting, you sometimes just don't don't uh, acknowledge it. It's just acting. People are just doing their thing. Yeah, or good refereeing, I think. Yeah. Is, right, is, yeah, exactly. If you don't notice the ref, he's done a great job. I thought the refereeing was very good in the Euros. Uh, yeah. Sam? Yeah, John, great to great to talk to you again. Um, I'm curious what your how your approach changes when you go from covering the club game to then the international game. And in particular, you've talked in the past on this show about, uh, you know, how important partiality is. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm just curious how much harder it is to kind of keep that out of it in a tournament like this with England, you know, making the run that they did, et cetera. Well, you ought to, it's a pity my wife's not here to answer that question because we actually watched <laughs> a couple of England games when I was back in Europe together and she gets extremely wound up and very excited, rather like the whole country back in England. And I don't, I watch the games pretty much, sounds sad really, but almost emotionless. And I think that's what so many years of doing major tournaments and covering England does to you, particularly with the BBC training, which I'm very grateful to have had at the start of my career, which emphasizes that impartiality. Mm. And that even though you might be doing England against Denmark, say in the semi-final, there'll be enough people watching from a Danish perspective that you've got to show respect to them and you've got to be more or less down the middle. So that's always stayed with me. I do think that that's in danger of departing from the broadcasting scene at the moment. Um, but I, I do hear partiality where I would expect impartiality. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that horse has bolted, but for someone of my generation, that's something I still cling to. So I don't get particularly wound up by England. And in fact, um, I, I think I'm slightly different to many people in that I go to these tournaments and it's the whole tournament that I look forward to, not the chance to commentate on England. Right. Um, so uh, I think that's a, it's maybe a point of difference between me and some others, not all others, but, but some others, because uh, many of my most enjoyable tournament experiences have been not commentating on England. Many of my most miserable tournament experiences have been commentating on England, partly because of the, the crowd disorder that sadly over the years has gone hand in hand with many of their matches. But I, I don't feel any particular urge to back England in a commentary. I just approach it like I would any other game with a degree of impartiality. You know, it reminded me, uh, I went to uh, Bill Burr, a stand-up comic, is a friend of mine, and I went with my girlfriend to watch the show, and he was absolutely hysterical. And I said, man, he... He's, he's killing it, man. This is great. She goes, you're not laughing. I go, yeah, I know, but he's hysterical. So I think it's because I'm in the profession that you look at with a, a jaundiced eye, perhaps. So th- talk about England a little bit, because I was so happy to see this sort of new English team. I heard so many good positive comments coming out of the camp. They were, they were friends. They were mentoring each other. Uh, they were sort of ignoring the British press, which can be so harsh on them and seems to dictate their emotions sometimes as a team, you know, sort of counterintuitive. Uh, they're not helping. Uh, and it felt like this team is a bunch of young, good professionals playing the Premier League. And I thought they were a different look team. And then just, it just exploded. It was like they took, they, they, they snatched uh, victory from the jaws of defeat, or I don't know what the expression would be, but it was so sad after they lost that game, after a great run for them, uh, it, it seemed like there was a lot of negativity there. Um, yeah, maybe. I mean, you describe them as a new team. I, I would say this team started at the last World Cup, really, and this is a continuation of this fresh-faced, youthful lineup that we saw Gareth Southgate field there. And Southgate, to me, is the key to this because he's the man that instills the attitude within yeah. him. He's the one that acts as the mentor, the father figure, the one that's been through the machinations of missing a penalty in a major game at a big tournament before. 
um, a man who's seen failure as well as success, both managerially and as a player. And I give enormous credit to Southgate for the public face of this young England team. And I think it's very easy to say, yes, we come away with a negative feeling from the Euros if you're looking from an English perspective. But I don't, because I, I think they did well. I think, like at the World Cup, the draw opened up accommodatingly for them. Yes. You know, they, they avoided most of the big guns en route to the final. Um, so I think we have to take that into consideration. Played at Wembley. Yeah, yeah. played at Wembley, big thing. Lost ultimately to, I thought, a better team in the final, despite mm -hmm. the manner of the defeat. So I actually view it as a success. Look at the last two major tournaments after years of relative failure. A semi-final of a World Cup and runners-up in a Euros. I think three years ago, uh, going into the World Cup, most England fans would have taken that. So I view the curve as heading in the right direction. Um, and I know that the people I speak to at the Football Association view it as a success and are very keen to tie down Gareth Southgate to an even longer-term deal because he clearly is the man that's getting the best out of this group of players. They all admire him as well as right. respect him. And I think that's a key thing. I've always said that, you know, a good coach at that level with that type of players, especially with a national team, you're more of a psychiatrist and psychologist than you are of an X as an O guy because you're you're managing great players. Who's peaking when? Who's doing what? You know, how to massage it in. So uh, yeah, I think you did a wonderful job in that respect. Grail? Yeah, John, I'm just curious. When you're doing so many matches, you know, whether or not it's a tournament or just uh, league matches, if you have time to kind of sit back and evaluate your performance, if, if you if you if you actually go back and and listen, and, and again, you've been doing this uh, for so long, perhaps you don't. But then uh, also, you know, can you give us any examples of things, maybe even going back to your early part of your career, where you wished you had said something, or you said something that you wish you hadn't said. I'm just, I'm just curious, kind of the self-reflection part of your job. Yeah. He, he wished, he wished he hadn't accepted an invitation to be on over the ball. He <laughs> <laughs> didn't know he was going to be a, a psychiatrist here. Um, self-reflection. I hate the sound of my own voice, so I find it difficult to listen to my stuff back. Um, the only time that I do is if I become aware that people are unhappy with something that I said or did or the way I handled something. So then I will go and examine it because I need to then make a decision as to whether their criticism is justified. Um, and it's such a subjective business anyway that one person will listen to a commentary and think that's brilliant and the other will listen to it and think, well, that's awful. Get rid of that guy. So I think you, you have to bear that in mind all the way through. Um, I'm my own biggest critic anyway. So coming away from a broadcast, I, I don't really need to hear it again to know whether something's gone well or badly. Um, in terms of things that I wish I maybe had done better or hadn't said, um, I wish I'd handled David Beckham's sending off better against Argentina in the 1998 World Cup because no one was clear at the time. Well, I mean, it's obvious now. You see the little kick, the little flick on Diego Simeone for which he was sent off but the prevailing feeling in the stadium at the time because the director didn't show that in real time was that he'd said something to the referee and had been sent off for dissent so that's a lingering regret but that's sort of the rough and tumble of live sports mm -hmm. commentary because you can't always be absolutely on top of everything it's just unfortunate it was a fairly major moment I mean mm -hmm. early in my career there are events moments which I think um, I had to handle at the age of 25, which I would have handled better at 45 or 55, just mm -hmm. experience. But hey, that's life. So we all learn things as we go along. But uh, it's it's such a high wire act um, without a safety net that occasionally you are going to fall off. And when you do, you'll hurt yourself for a few days. Hopefully the injuries are no more serious than that. So that's how I view really all my 
commentating experiences. Mm -hmm. There will be ups, there will be downs, and overall, it's great fun. You know, and you're always going to be criticized, and it's like it, what seems to be new is this Twitter, the amplification of criticism. Mm. And, and even if it's five people, they, they create a dust up. So it's interesting. We, we've had a tough time. We've talked on and off the air about this a little bit about how to talk about the women's uh, national team, because some of the language that we use for the men is much more offensive when you, you're talking about a woman, you're talking about players age, perhaps, uh, which we, we don't consider it. Uh, you say to a, a player is too old at 32, or sort of got a year left, maybe or two. But you know, here we we're talking about the, the women's national team earlier, a 39-year-old striker, a couple of 33-year-olds. It's like uh, we have found ourselves not sure how to trust ourselves when talking <laughs> during this Me Too movement about the women's game. So it's uh, what are your thoughts on that? It's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, I was getting messages when we were talking about Ronaldo being on the brink of the international goal scoring record. Mm -hmm. If you didn't insert the word men's into that sentence when you talked about it, then you got an awful lot of Twitter flack. But you know what? I really don't care what people say on Twitter, mm -hmm. which is maybe Good for you. Good for you. And maybe slightly controversial. But to me, Twitter is it's a platform that it can do enormous good. And we've seen that in various instances around the world on many occasions. But it's also a platform that comes with no responsibility for the people that use it. So it's just a firing range. And for that reason, I never take any notice of either good or bad on Twitter. I have a Twitter account because ESPN want me to have a Twitter account. If they didn't, I wouldn't. So I don't get too hung up on that because I've seen colleagues that have got wrapped up in that and it sends them into a mental spin, tailspin, and they get themselves in a dreadful place. And either they get themselves off Twitter or they go and see a therapist or they just find themselves in a permanently very dark mood. And it's just not worth it. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate to... I'm unfortunate to be so old. I am fortunate enough to have worked for a long time without Twitter and social media. And I can see the difference and I prefer it how it was. And yeah. whilst I'm in my own little world and thinking it can still be how it was, clearly it can't. I, I hope I'm strong enough to just ignore the Twitter world. And let's see where it goes from here. Who knows if it'll continue to survive. Grail? Yeah, John, just getting back to the, the art of commentary. One of the things I love about your play-by-play -play is it sounds very conversational and you somehow manage to avoid cliches. And my biggest hang up when I listen to commentary is just the overuse of ex certain expressions. Um, and I'm, I, I won't get into names or that. How do you, how do you avoid that? Because you just manage somehow to make everything sound somewhat fresh, conversational. You're kind of inviting somebody in to watch the match with you. And how do you avoid falling into that trap? Because there are like four or five cliches during the Euros that I must have heard like a million times. Grail, why don't you two get a room? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think, again, I come back to my training with the BBC as a young broadcaster and the avoidance of cliches was high up on their list of desired quality in a, a young commentator. So you have a mental checklist of things that you would consider to be cliches that you just avoid. So I, I think uh, you also have a mental checklist of things that you've said already that you don't therefore want to repeat in the course of the same broadcast. Uh, and sometimes you you slip from that and maybe mm -hmm. the same phrase or form of words slips out twice. But uh, immediately I would be admonishing myself if, if that's the case. In terms of it being conversational, that's probably a reflection of someone that's at ease at the microphone and not scared to be on a broadcast platform. And it's probably reflective of someone who generally keeps it fairly simple. 
You know, the, the job to me basically is identifying players and providing a bit of context. It's no more than that. It's not a platform on which to opine because you have a co-commentator, an analyst next to you whose job that is. So really, when you boil it down, I should just be shouting out a few player names and giving a bit of context. And mm -hmm. people get frustrated with me. I had a message after an MLS game last week to say, why is it that all you ever do is mention the players' names? I didn't bother to write that to this chat, but <laughs> yeah. I, my reply would have been, well, sorry if it's not what you want, but that is the job. <laughs> How it goes. And yeah. you, you talk about the BBC training. I feel it. It's it's. There's a reason why you get trained classically like that. And then I think from there, once you know, you can move into sort of your own creative way of doing it. Once you do the basic, I, I know they had, they put me on a Premier League uh, game in the studio because they had seen me do stand-up comedy, knew I had played professionally. And I tried to be humorous uh, with everything. And what I realized was I was trying to play jazz when I didn't even know the notes. You have to, you know, learn how to do the broadcast. And then maybe after, like you're saying, you're comfortable, you're trying not to stand out, you're trying to do the job, then some sort of little flares come in that are your mm -hmm. personal takes on things. But, um, but it was their, their grail is tough on the broadcasters here on this, on this program. So, um, so it's great to get some insight on it. I, I, uh, and then, uh, Sam had asked you earlier about uh, sort of partisanship and, you know, because we listened to the Serie A games or the Italian team playing with the Italian broadcast. I mean, they're so partial. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it jumps right out at you. So it's good to see you weren't doing that with the English game. But your wife would if she was on there. Oh, she would. She got so <laughs> frustrated with me watching an England game because she's so into it. And I'm not. It's not the only thing she gets frustrated with, by the way. Oh, I can imagine. We have all been married. Sam? Uh, yeah, John, you were just down turning to MLS a little bit. You were just down in Austin uh, to do a game. And I'm just curious what that uh, what that whole atmosphere was like, what the scene was all about, uh, you know, the new team, new stadium, et cetera. Yeah, new stadium was better than the new team, I think. Uh, <laughs> uh, well they're, they're an expansion team, so I think we've got to forgive them for that. I mean, it was slightly embarrassing for them to lose to the second youngest team in the history of Major League Soccer with five teenagers in it. It was reflective of... Uh, wow. A very productive academy at Seattle um, and a great effort by the few older players that were in that Sounders team that night. But Austin rather lost their way. But you are specifically about the stadium and it's great. It's typical of the new breed of MLS stadiums. Capacity just over 20,000, which is probably just about right at the moment. Really well appointed. Um, in terms of the noise within it, it's another place a bit like LAFC where you struggle to determine whether the influence is more South American or European, or maybe it's just American. And probably it is the last of those categories, which is a mixture of everything. Um, right. And it's very appealing for that. They've got a greater vocal range than LAFC, uh, a wider repertoire of songs. Um, most of them borrowed from elsewhere, but I'm sure they'll develop their own as, as well. But it's very colorful, very noisy, uh, very comfortable and well-appointed. And I think it, slots in very nicely to this more modern image of MLS. We got to get there because I love that town, Austin. It's a college town and very creative town. And so it sounds like they're putting that to use in their, uh, in their stadiums. And our friend Adrian Healy is over there. Um, so, and uh, I think Claudia Reyna as well, um, yes. player yeah. development there. So uh, good stuff there. Well, John, we uh, enjoy you talking to us. Uh, all the game. We thought you had some time off, but you've been doing other games as well. So uh, <laughs> welcome back to the States in this age of COVID, as they say. Um, you're vaccinated, I'm sure. We're telling everybody to get vaccinated, do your part for each other. Yeah. And, um, and uh, but thanks for joining us on Over the Ball, my friend. 
No, pleasure. Nice to be back from the Euros. Good to be back in the um, MLS world again. And we're looking forward to what I think will be a great season, uh, culminating for us in, in MLS Cup in December. And we've also, the other thing I'm really looking forward to at the moment is the US World, Quali uh, World Cup qualifiers in the in the fall. We have US-Mexico, which is going to be a, a thrill. Oh. That's a game I've never called before, so oh, it's another excellent. one to pick up. Oh, get ready. Get, get in your bunker and do your three to four weeks of research. <laughs> and I tell you what, the other good thing is uh, Canada is turning into a worthy yeah. adversary, as they say. And it's these these competitions are really great. Um, and uh, yeah, so all right, so we'll be listening to you on that Mexico broadcast and uh, the US team because, boy, we've we've got to succeed. Um, and uh, we, went, we went through some dark days. So uh, we're coming out of it a little bit. And uh, you're a big part of that, John. We appreciate you talking to us today on Over the Ball. Have a good one. Thank you. Great to talk to you and speak to you soon. Hey, remember to tweet us at Over the Ball, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and write a review. In fact, make us one of your favorites. It makes a big difference. All right. Always great to talk to John Champion. I tell you, what a breath of fresh air that guy is, isn't he? What a pro. All the work that goes into it, you know, we just we don't see that because we just we're watching the broadcast and but, but the hours and hours of prep that he does, it makes for a, a seamless experience. And then, the you know, the 30 something years of experience, it just yeah. is, uh, you can just tell. I mean, it's a really fun. I thought it was very interesting. I'm saying you don't want to be noticed. It's the game yes. that's important. Um, and that, that's, I think, something that, that sometimes broadcasters struggle with. So it's, uh, wow, he's, he's becoming the, uh, the template for it all. And yes. I also loved um, John Strong and, and uh, Stu Holden doing a great job, too. Doing Fox. very solid work. Yeah, yes. they really are. It's been mm -hmm. enjoyable to watch. So, uh, okay, Sam, what yeah. do you got for us I this think, week? Well, first, just a comment on that. I, this is one yep. of my, my major beasts with, with watching the Serie A in English is because I think about 95% of the time you're getting someone in a booth somewhere watching the game and right. you know it feels like you're one degree removed from mm -hmm. the action um, yeah. whereas when you're watching a premier league game and they're in the stands it just it brings you that much closer to the game um so yeah and sometimes right. there's even a delay with the feed sam so you have somebody like commenting like a nanosecond after something happened yeah, yeah. for sure it's and yeah. john john talked about that a little yeah. bit the the atmosphere that you can yeah. that, that comes with that with being on site so yeah all right. for sure I got my number two pencil out, Sam. What do you got for us? Yeah, today? I got just a, just a really quick quiz. Um, but before that, I just wanted to correct something I said earlier about the uh, the women's Euro, which uh, has in fact been happening for quite a while, which I will admit I didn't realize. Um, but I think my greater point was that uh, as the game continues to grow in Europe and that becomes a bigger deal uh, and grows in stature, I think it will likely rival the Olympics as sort of the number two women's mm -hmm. tournament, um, at which point, I don't I don't know. I don't know what will happen to the to the US women because they won't have sort of a regional equivalent of that of their own. Right. Basically. Right. Um, so, uh, OK, here's the quiz this week. It's just one question. Straightforward. Uh, so never in Gold Cup history has a guest country, an invited country won the title. However, on three separate occasions, 96, 2000 and 2003, a guest team has reached the final. Who are the two countries that have combined to make these three appearances? Okay, so what were the years against him? 96, 2000, and 2003. Guest country lost in the final. So there's three finals, but two teams account oh for all three. Oh my God, I have, I have no idea. <laughs> wow. Uh, 
Because it's a guest country, so you're pulling from everywhere. So you're pulling from somebody, but it has to. I mean, if they got cutter this time, and it has to like tie into a f- tournament that's just ahead of it, because that's why they're inviting them. So, yeah, but I don't remember there was like a, a ever a Morocco or something, a, you know, way out of a region like that. And there was the '98 World Cup. So, in this, Sam was saying '96. So that was in was France. France, was France, but that wouldn't be. Maybe it was a French because Martinique was invited, right? Are they an invited country, Sam? Hey, by the way, Martin. Martinique, Martin Martinique, that's like what the U.S. women play every time. If we just play Mar- <laughs> yeah. every every team's a Martin Martinique. Powder puff. Powder puff. Well, I think I think Martinique or no, um, Waitola was explaining they count as a Concacaf country, but not as a FIFA country. That's right. Oh, that's really? Right. Oh, yes. Interesting. Yes. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure, nations. Sam. I, I'm. I don't have a good answer for you oh, for this por- quiz. Portugal. Uh, all right. Well, you should have just gone with the most obvious soccer playing country, which is Brazil, who were the runner up in both 96 and 2003. And Colombia were the runners up. Oh, in God. Yeah. That's it. Oh, all right. I, you know what threw me off? Cutter, because that's like a wild card, man. So uh, it seems like it's anybody could be in the tournament if Cutter's in it, you know. Yeah. But they play, but they play in the um, uh, Copa America, right, Sam? Uh, Colombia plays in the Copa America. And yeah, obviously do. Brazil does, but I they were invited so, yeah. into this tournament. Well, so be, uh, no, it just seems weird. Yeah. It just seems like you've got your own tournament. Why would they get invited to the Gold Cup? Well, often they do They do kind of something like the U.S. are doing this year promo? where they send like a U23 or a B team. Got you. Um, almost because I feel like there's like a, an, a modicum of respect too. It's like, well, we don't want to win, but, you know, we're just going to send some guys over. Okay. Uh, unbelievable. Okay, good guys, good stuff. That's hey, it. let's go with the Ace of Flinty. Quick predictions for the matches on Friday, just because we've got the uh, the the Olympics. We got uh, we got uh, Great Britain against Australia. That's a that's a good matchup. Sweden, Japan, Netherlands, U.S. and Canada, Brazil. All right, take them one at a time. Ask hey, who do you like? Man. Okay, Great Britain, Australia. I'm going with Great Britain. For the women's game? Yeah, the women's. Men. This is the women's. This You're going for women's. Great Britain, huh? No, I say one nothing Sweden. Well, no, I'm going with it's Great Britain, Australia, so you can't. Really oh, Australia. I mean, uh, I still pick Sweden. Have you ever seen them? <laughs> okay. Uh, All going, right. No. Uh, Sam, you want to make a pick? Great Britain, Australia. Uh, I'll take Australia. Okay. Sweden, yeah, I take, Sweden, I'll take Australia too. Sweden, Japan. I'm going with Sweden, even though I'd love the home country to win. I'm going with Sweden. All right. So we're not going with scoreline, just to. No, just, just to pick know. in the match. Okay, so I got okay. Australia and okay. Sweden. How about Netherlands, U.S.? I'm, I'm going with, I, I think the U.S. can somehow pull this out. I don't know how. What do you like? Oh, gosh. Okay. I'm going to go with the Netherlands. Okay. <laughs> I'll take the U.S. I think they're going to okay. get, yeah, they're going to bear down and get Canada, Brazil, I'm going to go with Brazil because I think Brazil, U.S. Is, could be the next matchup and that could be the end of the road. But I'm going with Canada good. there. Okay, Canada. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take Canada. It's fun. Okay. Canadian soccer's on the rise. It cool. is. Yeah. All right. Well, we can. Uh, we'll we'll check our picks next time. Let's see how wrong we are because we only could be <laughs> we, wrong we once with yeah, Grail exactly. this week. <laughs> I mean, with uh, Sam. Sam only gave us one question this week, so we could yes. be uh, so wrong in that. All right, guys. It's all the time we have it over the ball today for uh, for Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett and our guest John Champion. Special thanks to him. It's always great having him on. I'm Kevin Flynn. We'll talk to you next time on Over the Ball. <laughs>